So I'm going to talk about fallen angel theodicies, which is uh, essentially uh, theodicies that lay the blame for natural evil. I know Stan said that's a bad category, but I already wrote the paper, so I'm going to talk a lot about it. Um, lay the blame for natural evil on Satan and his minions. Um, one thing I'm, I'm not going to address at all in the paper, but I, maybe I'll just say a word about now is I, I got interested in my area of study mostly is in the virtues. And um, I am, have not really done much work on the problem of evil at all. But um, I actually got kind of interested in this for personal reasons during a time in my life when I was going through a lot of pain and uh, sort of suffering a kind of mysterious chronic illness and um, casting about for ways of getting through it. And one of the things that struck me, you know, like, like intellectuals do, you know, I was reading all these books on the problem of evil thinking that would help me. And, um, but also reading scripture. And one of the things that struck me was that in scripture, there's this fairly common theme that an enemy or an adversary is often involved in the suffering that humans undergo. And I was just struck by how rarely that came up in most of what I read in contemporary analytic philosophy on problem of evil. And so I, I came across a paper by Alvin Plantinga where he just sort of mentioned in passing that he thought his famous free will defense could probably be extended to angelic free will. Uh, and I emailed him and said, you know, did, has anyone defended this view? And he said, no, but someone should and uh, strength to your arm. That's what he said. Well, I didn't have any intention of defending the view and I'm not going to develop the view very deeply today, but I am gonna to try to defend it against philosophical objections and say there's something here worth exploring. So here we go. In contemporary discussions of natural evil, one classically important theodicy, variously called warfare theodicy, fallen angel theodicy, or the Satan hypothesis is rarely mentioned um, or defended. This is the view that so-called natural evil, that is evil that is not caused by the free actions of human agents, but rather appears to be caused by the natural order of things, is actually caused by the free actions of supernatural agents, such as Satan and other fallen angels. No prominent philosopher of religion has provided a thorough defense of such a theodicy, although Alvin Plantinga and Terence Pennelham have indicated sympathy with it. Uh, Stuart Kelly and Michael Murray have offered sort of limited defenses of fallen angel theodicies. But as far as I know, they're the only ones to do so in the analytic philosophy of religion literature. Um, that may have changed since the, I, I, this comes from a paper I wrote several years ago. What little attention fallen angel theodicies have received in this literature has been mostly critical. And so my aim in this paper is to defend fallen angel theodicies against their philosophical objectors. I speak of fallen angel theodicies in the plural because there are many ways one could spell out the details of how fallen angels are responsible for so-called natural evil. Um, I'll entertain three examples at the end of the paper, but I'm not arguing for any one of them. In fact, I'm not even arguing that some fallen angel theodicy is true, though if I were a betting man, I would bet on it. Um, I'm arguing for the weaker thesis that the general strategy employed by fallen angel theodicies to blame the free actions of fallen angels for the evil that's not caused by the free, free actions of human persons. I'm arguing that that view faces no compelling philosophical or scientific objections, or at least no final, finally compelling ones. 
Fallen angel theodicies can be made coherent and plausible, both philosophically and scientifically. So here's just a quick roadmap. First, I'm going to say four things I'm not going to be able to do in this talk. Then five objections to the fallen angel hypothesis. I'll just call it FA with responses. And then finally, three fallen angel just so stories, how it might have gone. So first, what I'm, I'm going to comment briefly on several things that are important in this conversation, but that I'm not going to try to establish or, or adequately treat. First, I'm not going to offer a definition of evil. You'll notice that my definition of natural evil relies on the more general concept of evil. So natural evil is evil that is not caused by the free actions of human agents, but rather appears to be caused by the natural order of things. But I'm not going to try to offer a further analysis of evil. And that means I won't take a stand on exactly where the borders of natural evil lie. For example, is animal pain a type of natural evil? That's a contentious question and one I won't try to sort out here. I take it that there are plenty of non-controversial examples of what I mean by natural evil and the sheer quantity of the non-controversial cases is plenty to motivate interest in theodicies of natural evil. So, for example, I take it that the following are non-controversial examples of natural evil. A 10-year-old boy hiking with his family in Yellowstone wanders off the trail and is mauled to death by a grizzly bear. A nine-year-old girl develops a brain tumor that inflicts pain and agony for months before killing her. An eight-year-old boy is killed by a lightning strike while walking home from school in the rain. So keep these kinds of examples in mind throughout the talk, because they're the sort of things that a fallen angel theodicy is supposed to cover. Second thing, uh, I won't take a stance on whether a fallen angel theodicy is the dominant biblical theodicy of natural evil. Some theologians, pastor theologian Greg Boyd, theologian John Peckham, arguably C.S. Lewis, have claimed as much, and with strong support, I think. Um, whereas the two most prominent contemporary natural evil theodicies, soul-making theodicies and natural law theodicies, are at best, I think, consistent with the Bible, Neither seems to me to have as much biblical support as a fallen angel theodicy. The Old Testament commonly explains the chaos of the natural world with reference to powerful creaturely agents who oppose God, for example, Leviathan, Rahab, as well as the rebellion of lesser gods with whom Yahweh holds counsel and over whom Yahweh is ultimately sovereign. Both Old and New Testaments portray supernatural adversaries of God causing what would appear to be naturally. Think of Satan's infliction of suffering on Job in the Old Testament or Jesus healing of a woman whom we are told Satan kept bound for 18 years in the new. In the Christian scriptures, Jesus is referred to, or Jesus refers to Satan as the prince of this world, the ruler of the other demons and the root cause of human infirmity. And in the Joannine and Pauline writings, Satan is depicted as having real, although circumscribed dominion over the created order. More comprehensively yet, Romans 8 says that the whole creation was subjected to futility, raising the distinct possibility that the evil in nature is, far from being natural or God's original intent, a consequence of God's having granted the angels, most especially Satan, a domain of influence within which they have chosen to exercise their freedom to wreak havoc. The Bible as a whole frequently offers the same response to evil as Jesus does in the parable of the wheat and the tares. An enemy has done this. However, far more would need to be done to establish that a fallen angel theodicy is the clear biblical theodicy of natural evil. Suffice to say that given how prominent the devil is in biblical explanations of evil, it's surprising to me that fallen angel theodicies are not taken more seriously 
in contemporary philosophical discussions of natural evil. Third thing uh, that I won't be able to do, I, I won't take a stance on whether or not fallen angel theodicies were the most prominent theodicies of natural evil among the fathers or doctors of the church. Um, again, pastor theologian Greg Boyd, theologian, Eastern Orthodox theologian David Bentley Hart have both claimed this. However, uh, philosopher Alfred Fredoso, who uh, frankly I'm more inclined to trust on this matter, has said that a full-fledged fallen angel theodicy is nowhere to be found in the fathers or doctors. Fredoso claims that the fathers and doctors nearly unanimously held a theodicy of natural evil, according to which evils such as human disease and death by natural disasters are the result not of angelic malice, but of God's post-lapsarian removal of the special protection of human beings from the evil effects of the natural order. Um, according to Paul Gavriliuk, Origen, offer, Origen does offer a full-fledged fallen angel theodicy, whereas the rest of the fathers, while acknowledging that the devil and his cohort have the power to cause natural evil, do not chalk all natural evil up to fallen angel. I should say there, I think, whereas the rest of the fathers, while acknowledging that the devil and his cohort have the power to cause evil, do not chalk natural evil up to fallen angels. I'm no historian, so it's no part of my paper to assess just how prominent fallen angel theodicies have been in Christian theology. I will only say, at the very least, there are sort of the makings of a fallen angel theodicy, even in Augustine and Aquinas. Um, but I take Stan's warning of how easily this could be misread. I'm not saying this is Augustine's view. Um, but Augustine did say that the material order was under the control of angels, good and wicked alike, although never without God's permissive will. He says this in De Trin, book three. And um, Aquinas uh, took it for granted that all corporeal things are ruled by the angels, he cites Augustine, and that the angels possess an immediate presidency, not only over the heavenly bodies, but also over the inferior bodies. Finally, uh, I won't argue for the existence of angels, fallen or otherwise, nor offer any kind of demonology or typology of the various types of supernatural agents in the Bible. I will use the devil and Satan interchangeably um, and demon. I'll talk about it all with, and just run roughshod over the many exegetical questions that that might raise. My project is just a philosophical one to assess whether there are successful conceptual or empirical objections to the broad strategy of a fallen angel theodicy. Of course, if there were knockdown arguments against the possibility of angels, that would be one. And I'm gonna argue that there are no such arguments. So first, let me just restate what counts as a fallen angel theodicy. A fallen angel theodicies, FA, all evils that are not caused by the free actions of human persons are caused by the free actions of fallen angels. Now the qualifier all is important here. Fallen angel theodicies do not merely affirm that there are fallen angels who can and do commit evil acts. This would be too weak to count as a fallen angel theodicy. After all, you could hold the view that most instances of natural evil, such as the three I mentioned at the outset of the paper, are the result of divinely appointed natural laws, nothing more, and still think that fallen angels can intervene in the natural order to perform what we might call anti-miracles, special contraventions of the natural order meant to achieve special evil results. On this view, you'd think the fallen angels cause some evils, but you wouldn't think they cause all evils that are not caused by the free actions of human persons. In fact, you wouldn't think that they were the cause of any so-called natural evils. 
The force of a fallen angel theodicy lies not in its claim that fallen angels can circumvent the natural order to do evil. Rather, the force of a fallen angel theodicy lies in its claim that even those evils that appear to be merely the outworking of the natural order of things are in fact the work of fallen angels. The force of fallen angel theodicies, in other words, is their promise to subsume all evil, even apparently natural evil, under the category of moral evil. Philosophically minded folks here might wonder if F.A. really needs to commit itself to the qualifier all. Uh, after all, there is logical space here for a hybrid view, according to which some but not all so-called natural evil is pinned on the following. And I'm open to that hybrid view. I just don't see theological advantages to it. And so I'm not going to consider it here. Um, we turn now to philosophical objections to fallen angel theodicies. I'll consider and respond to five that have been posed in the literature, but it'd be interesting in, in Q&A or in conversation after uh, the talk to hear if you think I've overlooked other important objections. I'll move through the first four quite quickly and then spend a little bit more time on the fifth one because uh, I think that it probably represents the real source of enlightened skepticism about fallen angel theodicy. So here we go. Objection one, um, the fallen angel theodicy is ad hoc. William Abraham uh, claims this, calling the hypothesis hokey or implausible. But this objection was, was first posed, as far as I'm aware, uh, in the analytic philosophy of religion literature by Richard Swinburne. According to Swinburne, F.A. looks very much like an ad hoc hypothesis added to theism to save it from falsification by evidence, which would otherwise falsify it. If the fallen angel defense is to be taken more seriously, he says, we need evidence of the existence of fallen angels other than that provided by the existence of natural evil. Uh, Stuart Kelly convincingly argues, I think, that the ad hoc objection fails on several counts. First, there's nothing ad hoc about postulating an entity or entities that can explain some feature of the world especially when no other explanation is forthcoming. Natural scientists do this all the time. Admittedly, further evidence uh, in favor of that entity is confirmatory, but the lack of further evidence does not make the hypothesis necessarily ad hoc. Furthermore, second, it's not as if philosophers invented F.A. It's a prominent hypothesis for natural evil in the writings that Christians claim to be revealed and authoritative. Finally, if religious experience counts as evidence for God's existence, as Swinburne and many others think, then there is independent evidence of the existence of fallen superhuman agents, namely experiences of personified evil. Objection two, the existence of multiple incorporeal beings is incoherent because there would be no way of distinguishing between them. Therefore, theists who already believe in one incorporeal, incorporeal being God cannot coherently believe in additional incorporeal angels. So F.A. is not a viable theodicy for theists. Something like this objection is posed by Michael Martin. I think the objection presents a problem only if there really is no principled way of distinguishing between multiple incorporeal beings, but this is not the case. On Platonism, for example, the forms are incorporeal objects to be distinguished, not surprisingly, formally rather than materially. Similarly, the scholastics claim that since angels could not be distinguished from one another and from God materially, they were distinguished formally. Namely, every angel is its own species. 
One need not accept Platonism or scholastic angelology to recognize that the indistinguishability principle that Martin sets forth is far from obvious. And therefore, I think the proponent of FA will have a variety of possible responses available. Objection three, FA doesn't make headway with the problem of natural evil because we cannot envision any good reasons God could have for letting malevolent angels exercise their destructive power in these ways. In other words, even if it were possible for fallen angels to exercise their evil wills through the natural order, a good God would never permit it, or at least not very much of it. In this way, Robert Adams criticizes planting a speculative extension of the free will defense to include angelic abuses of free will. And here's what Adams says. One of the problems facing anyone who would use the fallen angels hypothesis in solving the problem of evil is precisely the difficulty of making it plausible that God could, even in the broadly logical sense of could, have had a good reason for letting the sins of fallen angels mess up the rest of the world. If sins of fallen angels cause cancer, for example, an omnipotent God could presumably have permitted the angels to sin without sustaining the causal connections by virtue of which their sins result in cancer. This is a variant on a common objection to the free will defense of moral evil. Namely, it's difficult to see what good reasons God could have for letting the sins of fallen humans do so much damage. After all, an omnipotent God presumably could have severed the causal connections by virtue of which human sin results in pain and suffering. Or at least he could have done that more often than he's done. But if you think there could be reasons for God to permit the damage done through human libertarian free will, it seems, to me at least, crassly anthropomorphic to deny the availability of such reasons for damage done through angelic freedom. And such reasons are available, I think. Richard Swinburne, for example, argues that if libertarian free will is to be valuable, it must include the ability to bring about great evil. If God effectively intervened to block the evil consequences of our sin, we would lose the ability to intend evil. The same argument could be extended to include angelic freedom. Um, to take another example, or another kind of reason that God could have for permitting this scope of angelic freedom. John Peckham, theologian John Peckham, explains that God's reasons for letting fallen angels act so destructively, or claims that God's reasons for letting angels act so destructively, have to do with God's love for the angels and God's wish to preserve in them the freedom necessary for reciprocal love. Peckham argues that scripture consistently depicts a cosmic court case between God and Satan over God's character with the heavenly council of angels hanging in the balance. Since the dispute is epistemic in nature, it's about God's goodness, God cannot settle it through sheer power. Instead, as portrayed in the book of Job, God temporarily grants Satan and his minions, quote, significant jurisdiction in this world, according to covenantal rules of engagement, which correspondingly limit morally, not logically, but morally limit the exercise of God's power to eliminate or mitigate evil that temporarily falls within the enemy's jurisdiction, end quote. And Peckham does a lot of nice biblical work pointing out how frequently throughout scripture, when Satan appears, you, it's the, the, the phrasing is often something like at the allotted time or when the spirit had departed, indicating that there are these 
often unspoken or un, unclear rules of engagement that God has uh, established with Satan or other fallen angels. So although the evil done to Job is not itself necessary for some greater good, the real freedom that God grants to Satan to test Job is necessary if God is to preserve the possibility that the angels will freely love and serve him. So in other words, God's reasons for permitting the scope of angelic freedom have to do with God's care for the angels. Regardless of the merits of these two proposals, objections to theodicies that depend on our inability to envision reasons God might have for permitting certain classes of evil are notoriously difficult to sustain. Um, the defender of F.A. need not claim to have such reasons, only that there may be such reasons. Such a move, made popular by skeptical theists in response to the evidential problem of evil, seems to me to be available here. So it's hard to see how Adam's objection to F.A. will be successful. Objection four, things aren't bad enough. If Satan and his cohorts were really responsible for so-called natural evil, things would be much worse than they actually are. David O'Connor poses the objection in the following way. What is odd about F.A. is how well Satan behaves, how well Satan and Satan's evil followers cooperate with God by so faithfully, regularly, and dependably contributing necessary conditions for the real, realizability of the divine plan. The amounts, kinds, and distributions of evils in the world, as well as the ubiquitous orderliness of the world, as we find them in experience, are surely distinctly unworthy of a band such as Satan and Satan's followers. Satan, as described in F.A., would surely be a, quite a disappointment to Satan if Satan existed. Satan might reasonably think that Satan was only a devil conveniently dreamt up by a theist, a devil of the gaps, in order to further a certain kind of theistic concept of the world. This is David O'Connor. To me, this is a strange objection. The natural atheologian argues that the existence of natural evil counts as evidence against the existence of the God of theism. The natural theologian responds that such evils are due to the malevolent activity of superhuman agents. The natural atheologian responds that natural evil isn't that bad, but how exactly bad would things need to be for F.A. to seem fitting? Beyond shifting the burden back onto O'Connor to specify exactly how bad things would need to be to accord with F.A., the proponent of F.A. might point out the plausibility, biblical, but also I think the philosophical plausibility, of the claim that God places limits on angelic power precisely to maintain sufficient order for the exercise of responsible human free will. Or another strategy, the proponent of F.A., might point out that Satan himself could have good reasons for reining in the extent of his destruction. After all, Satan's aim is to thwart God's purposes for eternal fellowship with human persons. And making his malevolent intent utterly transparent would only serve to better attune human persons to the cosmic war that Satan and his cohorts are waging against God. Satan wants people to hate God but pulling out all the stops in his campaign of destruction would only serve to turn human persons against Satan and towards God. Satan's aim, as C.S. Lewis cleverly displays in Screwtape Letters, is for people to find it difficult to believe in either God or the devil. Satan has done his job when the world is ambiguous, confusing, comfortable, and distracting enough that people just grow disinterested in the supernatural altogether. So the things are not bad enough objection fails too, I think. 
So let me turn now to the fifth and final objection. Um, I'm gonna linger a little bit longer on this objection um, because I think it's probably what actually lies behind a sort of reflex dismissal of FA by uh, modern and enlightened Christians. And that's that it's somehow unscientific to hold the fallen angels, the Odyssey. The basic idea of this objection is that fallen angels cannot account for natural evil because natural evil is already fully accounted for by the laws of nature. This parades as a scientific objection to fallen angel theodicies, but of course it is a philosophical one. Although it ultimately fails, I think, um, let me try to develop the objection as sympathetically as possible. And this actually comes from a paper that I wrote where I was more sympathetic to it when I wrote the paper, thinking it was a better objection than I now think it is. So I lay out the objection as I developed it and then say why I think I was probably wrong. So in 1941, Rudolf Bultmann wrote, now that the forces and the laws of nature have been discovered, we can no longer believe in spirits, whether good or evil. Bultmann here describes the disenchantment of the world. He paints a picture according to which we used to imagine the universe as a theater of supernatural exploits, but now we know it to be a spiritless machine. In days of old, Bultmann suggests, it would have been normal to interpret mysterious illnesses and awesomely destructive natural forces as the handiwork of temperamental and malevolent deities and spirits. But now, now that the forces and the laws of nature have been discovered, we see such interpretations for what they always were, fear-driven superstitions. Of course, this doesn't yet amount to a philosophical objection. People used to think one way, but now they think another is hardly an argument. However, we can sharpen this into a philosophical objection to fallen angel theodicies by noticing what Bultmann does not say. He does not say that since the forces and the laws of nature have been discovered, we can no longer believe in God. But why not? Won't the same sort of worry apply to God? Namely, we used to see natural disasters and the like as acts of God, but now we know they're merely the unfolding of natural law. Of course, there are plenty of moderns for whom this line of reasoning is compelling. But here I'm interested in those who believe in or could be brought to believe in God but for whom a fallen angel theodicy is simply beyond the pale. I'm interested, for example, in those contemporary philosophers and theologians who vigorously rebut the contemporary trend towards scientism, who deny that the success of naturalistic explanations presents a challenge to the rationality of theism, and who yet nevertheless balk at fallen angel theodicies. Why? What's the difference? If natural law explanations don't make God redundant, why should they make angels or demons redundant? So I think there is a kind of sensible basis for this asymmetry in our intuitions about how natural law um, crowds out the supernatural. The basic intuition at play here, I think, is that God has features that make him exempt from the redundancy worry, features that angels and demons lack. God need not be made redundant by the incredible success of naturalistic explanation because God can play an explanatory role that undergirds and complements the explanatory role played by natural laws. For example, and this goes to Professor Carroll's talk yesterday, God can be understood as the creative source of the natures or powers whose effects natural law describes. 
um, as, as Prof. Carroll put it so memorably, God causes causes to be causes. Or God can be understood as the one who sets the laws of nature, calibrates the fundamental constants and establishes the initial conditions of the universe. Or more esoterically, God can be understood as the actual direct mover, uh, as occasionalists think, of all non-autonomous natural bodies, the laws of nature being simply descriptions of God's uniform patterns of behavior. However it's spelled out, the idea is that we can see scientific explanation as compatible with and complementary to theological explanation. For example, the science of astronomy can predict the movements of the stars with appeal to nothing beyond the laws of nature, but since God either moves the stars himself or set the laws of nature and the initial conditions, or has given the stars and other celestial bodies their natures and powers, then it's a deep and truthful explanation to also say that the stars move as they do because of God. So we're now in a position to state a fifth objection to F.A. F.A. requires that fallen angels stand in some sort of relation to the natural order of things such that one, they're genuinely explanatory of that order, and yet two, the order maintains its gnomic regularity. But fallen angels can't meet these requirements for a variety of reasons. For example, fallen angels are creatures who thereby lack the sui generis power to create things with natures and powers. Such an ability belongs to God alone. Or fallen angels lack the power to determine the laws of nature, the fundamental constants, or the initial conditions of the physical universe. Or if we take the occasionalist approach and imagine the movements of natural bodies as directly caused by fallen angels, why would we expect any regularity at all instead of the haphazard chaos of a cosmic conflict between God and his good angels on the one hand and Satan and his fallen cohort on the other? In short, this objection claims, it is a stretch to look at the ordered universe, however dangerous and threatening it may be, and see in such an ordered system the vengeful attacks of an army of malevolent spirits. Maybe this was possible before we realized just how gnomically consistent the natural order is, but no longer. So what are we to make of this objection? Although I think it gets us closer to the heart of skepticism about fallen angel theodicies among enlightened theists, and I keep saying enlightened theists because one of the striking things to me is that I think among so many Christians, this is almost the common sense account given of natural evil. What are we to make of it? As a philosophical objection, I think it falls short. I think it places far too much confidence in our abilities to imagine all the ways in which fallen angels could be meaningfully responsible for a gnomically ordered world. And it places far too much confidence in our abilities to assess the plausibility of those scenarios we can imagine. I think Michael Murray is correct when he writes um, in his book on animal suffering. Michael Murray says, quote, in the same way that God has yielded substantial control over the terrestrial natural environment to fallen human agents, so perhaps God has yielded substantial control over the cosmic natural environment to fallen angelic agents. How much control over the cosmic environment can be seeded depends on what sorts of powers one takes these angelic beings to have. Could these beings, for instance, have exercised control over which natural laws obtain in our physical cosmos, over the quantity of matter the universe contains, 
over the speed with which habitable planets come into being, over the course of natural selection, over the genotype of various organisms or the genotypic variation over evolutionary history. Could these beings be to blame for the fact that human beings often have bad backs, myopia, liability to cancer and heart disease? Could their activity explain the fact that animals react to potentially injurious stimuli with both avoidance behavior and qualitatively painful accompanying mental states? Are the fallen angels to blame for the fact that living sentient organisms are not naturally immortal? For the theist, who is inclined to believe in the existence of powerful and yet fallen disembodied angelic beings, it is hard to be confident that the answer to these questions is no. So I think for this final objection to hold against fallen angel theodicies, the objector would have to show that none of the scenarios Murray proposes are plausible. And this is a tall order. It would require a lot of metaphysics. And as we all know, uh, metaphysics is not always compelling to everyone who hears it. Any particular metaphysical position is imminently challengeable. So as far as I can tell then, F.A. is a philosophically and scientifically viable theodicy of natural evil. Defending F.A. against objections, however, is different from trying to make a positive case for it. I've already sketched some of the biblical reasons one might have for embracing F.A. or being open to it, but the view would be more attractive, no doubt, if we could explain more precisely how the free actions of fallen angels can be comfortably integrated with natural science. So to close the talk, I will sketch three just so stories one could try to tell about this. I'll take them in order of plausibility, starting with what seems to me to be the least plausible and moving to what I take to be a genuinely plausible view. So just so story number one, the occasionalism thesis. The wills of agents are the only causal powers that exist. There are at least three such kinds of will, divine will, angelic will, and human will. All states of affairs are the outcomes of the expression of one or several of these wills. The state of affairs of there being a universe at all is the outcome of the will of God. The state of affairs of my standing before you right now is in part an outcome of my human will. And the course of nature, rather than being the outworking of the natural powers of objects like quarks, electrons, rocks, and trees, is instead the outworking in part of angelic will. The relationship between angelic will and the so-called natural order is akin to the relationship between will and body. In a human being. One difficulty for the occasionalism just so story is that the natural order appears to be too regular and predictable to be the expression of angelic will, as I've already mentioned, let alone a host of angelic wills, some fallen and others not. Think, for example, about psychology, the attempt to offer a science of human behavior. Um, it's hard. It's debatable whether there is such a science. I myself am dubious. And we certainly have found no laws of human behavior that admit of the kind of predictive power that natural law affords. Thus, to think of natural law as mere summary statements of the patterns of action characteristic of a host of warring angelic wills stretches credulity. If the natural order is to be understood as the outworking of angelic agency, we should expect natural science to be at least as limited as the science of human psychology, but it is not. In response, one could appeal to the principle offered above uh, in response to David O'Connor's objection to FA, namely that Satan has a vested interest in giving the appearance of regularity. 
The problem here, however, is that on the traditional mythology, at least, or theology, all of the angels are not fallen. Some remain devoted to God's plan of redemption. And there appears to be no non-arbitrary reason for thinking only the fallen angels would bear the aforementioned relation to the movements of material objects. How then to explain such orderliness if the cosmos is the site of a battleground between good and evil angels, both of whom may move natural objects directly without any constraint from inbuilt essences or powers. The defender of the occasionalism thesis could bite the bullet and concede that all the angels fell, but this concession would be costly since much of the attraction of F.A. stems from its strong representation in scripture and to a lesser extent theological tradition. And this would clearly be a departure. Just so story number two, the watchmaker thesis. Assume a more standard picture of natural laws, one in which natural laws either causally govern the movements of physical objects or express mathematically the gnomic relationships that obtain in virtue of the natural powers of physical objects. On such a view, it's hard to see where the fallen angels would find elbow room, so to speak, to muck things up. However, the defender of the watchmaker thesis can argue that if we go far back enough in time or space, perhaps there we can find the elbow room needed for envisioning the manipulations of angelic will. In the same way that deists conceive of the watchmaker God as determining the natural laws and initial conditions of matter in the beginning, then letting the future play out like clockwork, Similarly, we might think of some remote time before humans existed, but after the angelic fall, when fallen angels arranged all or portions of the material universe in such a way that particularly devastating natural events would unfold throughout human history, throughout history, all history, cosmic history. Although angels do not have the power to create, they do, according to scripture and tradition, have some powers of local motion over corporeal matter. And just because vast swaths of nature appear to be seamless, we have little reason to be confident that such power of locomotion has not been employed, perhaps only or mainly in times exceedingly remote from our perspective to redirect the course of nature. The obvious objection here is that this is really a devil of the gap story. And everyone knows that gap stories are trouble. I agree that the watchmaker thesis um, is less attractive for this reason, but maybe this isn't a decisive objection. Suppose God created the pre-sentient physical world in such a way that had the angel simply left things alone, the natural laws and initial conditions would have produced a natural paradise without the suffering or death of any sentient beings. Suppose, however, that he gave angels free will and presidency, as Aquinas puts it, over the celestial bodies. And suppose there was at some point prior to the existence of sentient life and angelic fall. What would have prevented the fallen angels from significantly adjusting the initial conditions then in such a way as to produce, for example, a blood-soaked evolutionary history, including all the pain and agony experienced by humans in the so-called natural order of things? The defender of the watchmaker thesis would need to explain why a good God would give so much power to the angels, but I've already indicated the availability of certain lines of response to this question. Finally, just so story number three, the seed thesis. Natural law is a function of the powers of objects, but many of these powers are latent or indeterminate and can be manipulated by the designs of human or angelic will without any violation of the laws of nature. For instance, there are powers latent in an apple seed, but those powers require some appropriate manipulation for their realization. 
By manipulating their environment, human beings can make apple seeds to be the cause of good or conceivably evil. By analogy, material objects have latent powers that can be made to be the cause of good or evil by good or evil angels, respectively. This appears to be Aquinas' view um, in um, the Prima Pars, question 110, taken directly from Augustine who expresses it as follows in De Trinitate. So then, just as we do not call parents the creators of human beings, nor farmers the creators of their crops, though it is through the external action they provide that the power of God operates inwardly to create these things, so we are not permitted to call bad or even good angels creators, just because with their finer senses and more volatile bodies, they perceive these seeds of things that are hidden from our gaze and scatter them secretly among suitable combinations of the elements and so seize the opportunity to bring things to birth and accelerate their growth in novel ways. One question the seed thesis would need to handle is how to explain the fact that we never feel the need to appeal to angelic will to explain the current arrangement of the natural order. If the analogy between human and angelic manipulation of seeds holds, we would expect to find a need to revert to explanations in terms of angelic will just as we have a need to appeal to the exercise of human agency to explain, for example, the current arrangement of all the apple trees in the universe. In other words, whenever material objects have powers that require particular conditions or manipulations for their actualization, an adequate explanation of the exercise of those powers will include explanations for why those particular conditions obtained or why those particular manipulations occurred. Yet we appear to never have to appeal to angelic agency in order to explain the workings of the natural order. In response, a defender of the seed thesis might appeal to the way in which quantum mechanics, as currently understood, preserves space for a kind of indeterminacy that nevertheless has far reaching macro level effects. In other words, there really are unanswered, but perhaps not unanswerable questions about, for example, the current speed and position of any given particle in the universe. At the quantum level, our best explanations are statistical, which is to say that we lack exhaustive explanations. Perhaps it is precisely angelic activity that would feature in a full exhaustive explanation, such that angels, both good and evil, hold sway over domains of space-time in which they determine the collapse of wave functions and thereby propagate far-reaching effects. These just-so stories are rudimentary sketches. Given the prominence in scripture of the view that Satan and his cohort are the cause of much, if not all, natural evil, I think there's good philosophical and theological work to be done along these lines. And I'm not saying that I've even begun to develop a coherent and robust just so story. For my money, if you're interested in this, the best current attempt to offer a full-fledged uh, fallen angel theodicy is in this book, The Odyssey of Love by John Peckham. Uh, there's a couple of big books by Greg Boyd, a really interesting pastor theologian, who's a big proponent of what he calls warfare theodicy. And they're really scripturally interesting but there, um, there's a lot of philosophical confusion. Um, he thinks that you have to be an open theist, for example, to hold to the fallen angel theodicy, which you don't. Um, 
But John Peckham's book is really uh, a book of, of deep and interesting biblical theology with a lot of philosophical sophistication. So I, I highly recommend it. In any event, my hope is that uh, more philosophers of religion and, um, and more theologians will take up F.A. as a theodicy of natural evil worth developing and defending. Thank you. <laughs>